Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Michael Weinberg, Vice President of Public Knowledge, about net neutrality. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am vice president here at Public Knowledge, and Public Knowledge is a nonprofit advocacy organization in Washington. And our mission is to represent consumers and the public interest in technology policy. And so it kind of ends up breaking down into into two parts. We do a lot of telecom-related stuff, so a lot of net neutrality stuff, and then a whole lot of intellectual property related things. So a lot of copyright, a lot of patent reform. And within that, I kind of jump around all over the place. I do kind of all of those things. And then I also do a lot of work personally on emerging technology. So I do stuff on you know, 3D printing and open source hardware and other things that might create policy questions down the road. Sure. Yeah. Like the 3D printed gun issue. I'm sure yes, that's been a like fun. The 3D printed gun issue. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a fun couple of months last year. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you get a machine that can make anything, people make anything. Yeah, I'm sure there are even stranger things that have been 3D printed at this point. Um, yes, there, yeah, there definitely are. <laughs> another show, another show. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, and so how long has Public Knowledge been an advocacy group? How long has it been around? So we've been around for about 13 years. And a lot of the focus initially was that the rules that were negotiated around copyright and the internet were kind of negotiated between a couple of large rights holders and a handful of tech companies. I mean, this, this happened in the late 1990s. So it was, you know, AOL was at the table and companies like that, but a lot of users weren't there. And so out of that process came the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, And the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or the DMCA, kind of governs how all copyright works online. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't work. And and a lot of the reasons it doesn't work when it doesn't work is there was no one in that negotiation representing consumers and users. And, And so that's a lot of the reason that we were started. And then because so many of the telecommunications issues, especially things like net neutrality, are so central to free expression online, that we had a sort of institutional and a personnel history in those issues. And so we've also been involved with net neutrality since essentially the beginning of the net neutrality debate. Yeah. So when would you say it started? The net neutrality debate? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can kind of pick different times that that you want to sort of draw the line. We actually have, uh, we have this timeline that we have online And we start that one in October of 2002. That's actually before even the term net neutrality was coined. But that was a case that was reviewing some FCC decisions where the FCC decided how they were going to treat the kind of new, then new technologies of broadband internet, of DSL and cable internet. And a lot of the decisions the FCC made then have had major ramifications 
for net neutrality. And so that fight was in some ways a prelude to all the net neutrality stuff that's come after it. Most of our listeners probably are aware of net neutrality as this issue that is sort of floating around the the internet ether and the blogosphere <laughs> and news. But um, what is it really? I mean, it's a term that describes sort of this issue, but what are the underlying issues, I guess, involved with net neutrality? At its core, net neutrality should be and is a kind of straightforward thing, right? So simply put, net neutrality is the principle that the company that connects you to the internet doesn't get to control what you do on the internet. So that company, that internet service provider, the ISP that provides you that link to the internet, uh, they don't really get to manipulate what you do online and services and websites don't work better or work worse based on whether or not they have some sort of special commercial deal with that ISP. So that ISP should not be in a position to be you know, a gatekeeper or a toll booth or someone who gets to decide that, yeah, you know, this part of the internet, it's only really going to work if, if we bless it, if we like it. Uh, you actually shouldn't have to care what your internet service provider thinks about any website you visit. Their job is to connect you to whatever website you want. And so net neutrality is the set of rules and the principles that, that maintains that status quo of how the internet has essentially always worked. It follows logically to me that a non-neutral net would be threatening to one's like freedom of speech maybe or like access to um, information that they would otherwise have a right to have access to. And I think, you know, as a librarian, I'm always constantly concerned about people's ability to access information. I think the internet has really revolutionized that. And so I'm wondering for you, what do you think some of the implications would be if if it was if this net neutrality was taken away, if like if we had a non-neutral net? Because the internet is kind of so big and so important to people's lives in so many different ways, there are a lot of ways to think about what the negative implications of a non-neutral internet would be. Um, but I think a lot of times there are kind of two ways, two big ways you can think about it. And this will be leaving out a lot. And I'm sorry for all those things I'm leaving out. But one is you know, people talk a lot about innovation. So new services won't be able to start because they won't be able to pay to get into the fast lane and things like that. And I think that's, that's really important. And that gets a lot of attention during the net neutrality debate. But there's this other part of it that I think you hit on with this access to knowledge and this community-based situation, which is, I don't think ISPs are evil and that they kind of sit around twirling their mustaches thinking about how to make it harder for people to access information or about shutting down small web communities that are really important to the people who are involved with them, but just, you know, aren't giant companies. But as soon as you start getting into this situation where ISPs are allowed to create these kind of fast lanes and slow lanes and charge some companies and some users to get into the fast lane, the ISP has this incentive to make sure that the fast lane, the premium fast lane, is better enough than the slow lane to justify paying to get into it in the first place, right? Because if it's just kind of the same, then no one's going to pay you the premium fee. Mm -hmm. And the side effect of that, almost the kind of unintended consequence, if you're being generous, is that everything that's sort of stuck in the slow lane, not because the ISP is targeting it, because the ISP doesn't really care about it, 
all of those things get stuck in this sort of second tier internet. And so, you know, everyone has you know, whatever. A lot of people use, you know, Google and go to YouTube and go to Facebook and all these sites, and that's fine. But everyone has kind of this internet map of their own, and it's full of all these sort of random niche corners. And all of those corners get left behind and degraded when they're stuck in the slow lane. And so you think about, you said access to information, right? If you're researching something, you might start at a couple of big sites, but you, if you're doing it right, you end up in these like crazy corners of the internet with rich sources of information, but you know, not getting millions of hits a, a day. <laughs> and those are the kind of sites that really lose out when you start bifurcating the internet and slowing down big chunks of it. Yeah, and I've heard arguments that, oh, well, that some of these services require more bandwidth or they're, you know, like streaming services, for example, that would be uh, considered part of the, the quote-unquote proposed fast lane, uh, that they need more um, <coughs> speed and support than, say, a static page with information on it about swing dancing or something. Do you think yeah, that that, I mean, I think... that uh, argument, like, holds any water? I mean, I don't think it holds any water as a reason not to do net neutrality. And the reason is that it is true that if I want to watch a bunch of video, streaming HD video online, that takes up much more bandwidth, that, that requires more network resources than a static page on swing dancing. That's absolutely true. So how do networks get some money to buy it to build out their network? Well, if I'm someone who wants to stream a lot of HD video, I pay for a faster internet connection. <laughs> And I'm paying for that faster internet connection. I'm paying more for it because I want to use those services that require it. And so once I'm paying an ISP, I say, look, for, for my own reasons, I want the, the 50 meg plan you know, download speed, not the 6 meg download speed. And I want that because whatever, I want to do HD video, I want to do something else. I'm paying more in order to do those. And once I've paid that, you should deliver to me whatever service I want. And if I don't want to use that much video, then I'll, or you know, whatever those heavy services are, I'll pay a lot less. And so this idea that these edge services use more data and more resources in some ways is true, but we have a mechanism to get those funded. And the FCC actually describes this fairly eloquently. You know, and FCC doesn't always describe things eloquently, <laughs> but they talk about this virtuous cycle. They say, look, the re one of the reasons we want net neutrality is because this virtuous cycle has been incredibly helpful for the internet. And you can start the cycle wherever you want, but let's say you have someone who builds a great new app and it requires faster speeds than old apps. What happens? People go to their, they say, this app is amazing. They go to their ISP, they say, I want a faster internet connection. ISP makes more money, it takes that money, it invests it in the network to speed the overall network up, which then opens the door to someone else to come along to build the next app, the next use that requires more speed, and then you get back in that cycle. And that cycle is what drives all it, but the cycle requires among all the pieces that new, new apps, new uses of the internet can just exist online, that people can start something new to fuel that growth and that innovation. Speaking of the FCC, are you on board with the classification of the internet as a utility? And, and if so, like, where does the FCC fit in that, in regulation of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so classifying the internet as a utility is a shorthand that some people use. And I think it's, it's an okay shorthand to use. I think that if you think of, if you're thinking about it, of classifying the internet as a utility, you think of it more like 
the phone is a utility and less like, you know, power lines a utility. Mm -hmm. But but yes. So fundamentally, there are right now the net neutrality debate is actually two simultaneous and linked debates. Um, one, the obvious one, the one that you would expect is what should the rules be? Right? I care about net neutrality. I want rules that protect the open internet. What should those rules say? Right? How should they define the open internet? Um, but there is also a slightly wonkier, weedier debate going on about the FCC's authority to make their rules in the first place. And that's what all of this classification debate is about. That's what all this utility debate is about. That's all about what authority the FCC uses to explain their rules. And this is something that every regulatory agency does. I mean, the, the reason that, you know, when the FCC passes rules, after all the rules are written, they then at the end say, and here's the part in the law that Congress wrote that allows us to write these rules. So it's, it, you know, the reason that the FCC cannot regulate, you know, coal emitting power plants or something is because there's no law where Congress granted the FCC authority to do that. But when the FCC does something else, they, you know, something within their, their range of, of options, they can say, okay, well, look, we're going we're gonna to regulate radio stations because here's the part in the law uh, that allows us to do it. And the reason that this authority question, which feels very kind of secondary and technical, is so important is because at the beginning of this year, in January, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals threw out the FCC's old open Internet rules. And they did that not because the rules themselves were bad. In fact, the court said, we totally understand why you would want to make these rules. We get the problems that you're, that you're describing. But the court said that the FCC did the authority piece wrong. And so as we think about rules that are being hopefully written right now, if they get the authority part wrong, that kind of classification part wrong, then it doesn't matter what the, the rules are because the rules may get overturned again. And so that huge, the fight you hear about Title II and regulated as a utility, all of that is kind of like the bedrock beginning of the argument that would allow good net neutrality rules to survive. And that's why it's so important, even though it feels a bit obscure sometimes. So... I mean, I've heard a lot of portrayal of net neutrality as a partisan issue. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird because you wouldn't think it would be a partisan issue because, you know, if you think about kind of traditional caricatures of uh, Republicans and Democrats, the Democrats are obviously supporting net neutrality generally. But Republicans, I mean, they care a lot about small businesses. They care a lot about kind of freedom for people to do something new, you know, and they, they don't like kind of large market distortions because they think the free market should work. But most Republicans, if you talk to them, they say, yeah, the free market needs to work. And it's totally legitimate to have some rules that allow the free market to operate. You know, antitrust law is an important piece of law. And so you wouldn't think on its face that it would be a partisan issue. And I think initially kind of early on, it wasn't a partisan issue, but for all kinds of reasons, it's really unfortunate that right now we're in a little bit of a place where there is a high level of partisanship connected to net neutrality. And I think it's unfortunate because I don't, I don't think that the net neutrality debate really fits in 
along ideological and partisan lines. The Republicans benefit from all sorts of open internet the same way the Democrats do, right? The Republicans have YouTube channels. The Republicans use Twitter. They have all sorts of crazy, you know, email stuff that they send out. And all those services were developed on an open internet. They benefit from it just from a, a purely sort of selfish, we're going to win elections standpoint. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that it's become a little bit politicized or a lot politicized. Yeah. Who would you say are some of the primary lobbying forces that are fighting net neutrality? Well, I mean, the, the primary lobbying forces that are fighting net neutrality are, are the ISPs, the Internet Service Providers. Uh, they really, uh, especially the big ones, they really uh, do not like the idea of net neutrality. And, you know, the thing about, about the ISPs is not only that they are big, but they operate and they've operated for decades within a highly regulated framework, right? So if you're an ISP and it's also a telephone company, it's also a cable company, a huge amount of your business is massively impacted by decisions that are happening in Washington in a way that's not true if you're, you know, like a huge agricultural company or even a big tech company. And as a result of that, the ISPs are just much more sophisticated and spend a lot more money in Washington engaged in policy debates than almost anyone else any other kind of industry and certainly a lot of public interest groups. So they are just big, sophisticated players with long, expensive histories in these debates. And so they are very, very good at fighting for their interests when you come to, to things like this. They're leading the charge. I think everything else, everyone who's against net neutrality or all the major forces against net neutrality, um, I don't want to you know, single out individuals, but kind of the major forces against net neutrality almost all can be traced back to ISPs and ISPs pushing back against net neutrality. Yeah, so what sort of traction do they have in this argument? The, the reality of, of kind of lobbying in Washington, and this, uh, this may sound surprising, this may sound shockingly non-cynical from someone who spends their days doing Washington policy stuff, is that big, powerful, sophisticated lobbying operations like the ISPs have they work best when people aren't paying attention, when it is kind of an obscure issue, when the only people who are really engaged on it are kind of big industry players. Uh, in those cases, lawmakers, decision makers, people, you know, whatever the regulatory agency is, they, they end up being very engaged traditionally and often with the industry position. But as an issue kind of moves its way up the ladder, and becomes a top-tier premier issue, which I think it's safe to say that net neutrality has become, the power of those expensive lobbyists and those businesses go down. Because then all of a sudden, all the decision makers realize that the public is really engaged in this, and they'll really be watching what decisions are made. And in those situations, that's when the positions that a public interest organization like public knowledge would assert, that's when that's basically when we win. We win when people are engaged and paying attention and we lose when the only people paying attention are industry. And so right now, when you have such a high level of engagement, I mean, you know, we're doing this podcast on net neutrality. Um, net neutrality is on all sorts of, you know, on comedy shows, on, you know, it's, it's all over the place. People are probably sick of net neutrality in a lot of ways because it's been so many places. You know, the president weighed in on net neutrality. 
when that happens, all of a sudden, it doesn't eliminate the power of the ISPs, and it becomes it still is an incredibly hard fight. But that's where the balance comes out. And people are cynical, and they're like, oh, there's nothing you can do when you have the entrenched forces. And I think that if you look at the arc of the net neutrality debate of this year, and I say this sort of not with, with, with a deep awareness of kind of how it has happened, it has been the story of everyday people really pushing back against huge incumbent ISP interests and winning and just like winning battle after battle after battle. It's not done, but there is an ability to push back against that. Yeah. So if people want to get involved in that pushback, like what are some good ways for them to learn about it and to get involved? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there are a lot of organizations who are doing incredible work on net neutrality. I work at Public Knowledge. I'm going to start with Public Knowledge. They go to publicknowledge.org. Um, but we have allies. There are allies who are ours who are based in Washington. Um, you know, organizations like Free Press and the New America Foundation who are doing incredible work. Allies outside of Washington who are more grassroots oriented. Electronic Frontier Foundation, obviously. Demand Progress is doing a lot of work. Uh, Color of Change is doing a lot of work. The National Hispanic Media Coalition. I mean, there are just there's this huge coalition of public interest groups and advocacy groups who are coming together and saying, this is what's going on. And, you know, if you want to get involved, everyone, every one of those organizations has information up on their website. Every one of those organizations would be happy to send you emails if you sign up for email list, would be happy to send you stuff on Twitter if you follow them on Twitter or on Facebook, you know, whatever your preferred method is. And I will say, you know, as you find that information, it, and it shouldn't be hard to find, um, when those organizations come to you and say, we need you to contact X, the president, Congress, the FCC, the reason they are saying that is because that's what helps push our opinion, our agenda. You know, when public knowledge goes to the FCC and says, we think this is the important, this is the right way to approach this issue. That's worth, that's worth something. Um, and that gets taken seriously. But it, it takes us, you know, kind of as far as it takes us. When we show up at the FCC and say, this is what we think is the right issue, and there are 4 million people who've taken the time to weigh in with you about it who agree with us, that's a completely different conversation. And so those requests to kind of weigh in are very real and they are unbelievably effective. Yeah, democracy in action, huh? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really is. And I, you know, it's so easy to be cynical about this stuff, but, but I'm serious. Like, that's the way, that's the way that it works. The, the, the way that you take, you know, policy decisions back from entrenched interests is basically to, to tell your member of Congress, or the decision maker, you're paying attention. You would be shocked how few phone calls it takes to, uh, you know, a member of the House of Representatives office from constituents before they call us. And they're like, so there's this net neutrality thing. Um, a lot of people are telling us it's important. We need to know what's going on. I mean, you get like 40 phone calls in a concentrated period of time to an office, that'll get their attention. You get you know, 100 phone calls to a Senate office, that'll get your attention. That's really low bar. And you know, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you think if you're listening to this podcast, think how many times you have actually called your member of Congress. Now, some of you may have called them all the time, but for a lot of people, it doesn't happen very often. And so for something to come along to engage you enough that you actually make that phone call, those offices, they get that 
that's a rare occurrence. And if they get a bunch of them, again, not that many of them at once, they decide, okay, this is a, we're going to put this issue on the top of our list because people, our constituents are mad enough about this, engaged enough about this, that they're calling us about it. And so that puts it to the front of the line. Let's make sure we are right on this. We're not just where a couple of corporate lobbyists want us to be. You know, years ago in the pre-internet days, there were like phone banks. You would get calls asking you to call your senator about X or Y or to like write a letter to somebody. And I think that uh, it's so interesting how the internet has powered so much of this internet advocacy in its sort of feedback loop. And I wonder if, you know, on a non-neutral net, like how that might work, how that that implementation of democracy on the web might change. I know on some level you can say, oh, well, the ISPs might actively interfere with, with that. And, you know, that, that could be true. But you don't even have to think that to be worried because on a non-neutral net, I mean, if I think of all the digital tools that we use to get, to get people information, to get people engaged, to activate them, how many of those tools simply wouldn't have been created on a non-neutral internet? You just, you don't see them existing anymore. And so it slows down innovation, not necessarily because what you're doing has been targeted, but just because no one is able to get the thing off the ground. And so you just, you don't have those tools anymore and you're not as effective anymore. Bleak, dark internet future. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can avoid that future with you know, a strong net neutrality rule. So that's the, that's the key. We don't want that future. That's the Biff owns the cops future. We can, we can still have a good future, positive right. future. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let's let's pretend for a second that it's ruled that the FCC isn't going to regulate these ISPs and it's none of their business and, and the all this stuff's out the window. What do you think, what would that look like? I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't look good. I think in the short term, what it would look like is a handful of websites and services that are already successful that can afford to pay off ISPs will do so. And so they will keep operating. And a bunch of the services that can't will either fold or be stuck in the slow lane. And then kind of in the medium term, you'll get a greater and greater divergence between the fast lane and the slow lane. So if you think about it now, when a new web platform or a new service, when a new kind of whatever for the internet is made, it's made in a way that operates across the open internet. So even if it was developed at some huge company that has all sorts of money to throw at ISPs they had to, it still technically works for anybody. And so you will see less of that because you'll see new services kind of optimized for the fast lane. And so those sites that, you know, your, your, your swing dancing site that today can integrate all sorts of crazy social media stuff and all sorts of video stuff just because, you know, it's available on the Internet. Um, it will look increasingly different from the fast lane sites. And then in the long term, and this is almost in some ways, this is kind of the most frustrating part is there are all these things that will occur to people to do online. Some of them commercial, some of them just sort of community building where when they look at how the internet is working and sort of the fast lane, slow lane, and you know, being, if they can't pay the, the toll for the gatekeeper ISP, they just kind of won't pursue those things. And the reason that that is in some ways the most frustrating is as a user, as a person who's on the internet, you won't even know what you're missing. 
those services, it's not like they will exist as a blip and then disappear. And you'd be like, oh, man, all those blips, they keep popping up and then disappearing. There will be some of those. But there'll just be these, a huge number of things that will never even become a blip. And they just, they just won't happen. And you'll kind of go along saying, back in the day, there was all this like, crazy stuff happening on the Internet. Like every, you know, every week there was some new way to do things. And that's just sort of slowed now. And I guess that's just the Internet maturing. And that's, that was just an inevitable result of the evolution of the Internet. But in fact, it wasn't. It was, it, the reason that that change will be occurring is just because we made a policy decision to change the way the Internet operates. And so we just would get less innovation. And that, in some ways, is kind of the most frustrating outcome. Yeah. So do you want to <laughs> do you want to um, give a couple of suggestions for ways people can get involved, like right the second as they listen to this podcast? Yeah. So right the second as you listen to this podcast, uh, this podcast, you know, you, you'll be airing probably in December. So you're listening to this. Uh, probably if we are lucky, the FCC hopefully is in the middle of writing a bunch of rules that will make the FCC have like strong open internet rules. And so what I would say is, because I work at public knowledge, I'm going to tell you to come to, go to our site, but go to publicknowledge.org and engage with us however you want, you know, email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever floats your boat, because what is probably going to happen is as soon as the new year comes, we're going to see a real last need to do a big push to kind of get the FCC over that finish line. And to, they're going to get a lot of pushback from the ISPs. And so we're going to need to kind of mobilize everyone. And so the thing that you can do now in December is make sure you are engaged. So when the call goes out, it finds you. And then you can say, yes, I'm in. I will call Congress, the FCC, the president, whoever it turns out to be the person that needs to be engaged and say, you have promised me net neutrality. You've been saying you've been working on net neutrality for a year. It's time to wrap this thing up. All right. Hear that, people of the future? Let's make people the, of the future. Keep the Internet we're, neutral. We're I'm telling you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Cryptic messages from two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's all the questions that I had for you. If you have anything else to add, feel free to say whatever you wish. No, I just, you know, I think this is this is an important issue that impacts everything that is done online and it impacts it in some ways that are obvious and some ways that are not obvious. And we're in this moment right now where those kind of underpinning, those fundamental rules are being written as we both as we speak and as you are listening to this podcast right now. And that's the time where policymakers and decision makers really need to hear from people outside of Washington that this really is important. And so uh, take it seriously and know that when you do weigh in, it makes a, a huge difference. If nothing else, it makes my job like a million times easier when I can walk in and say, I've got a posse of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who totally agree with us on this. And so you need to do it right. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more information about net neutrality and how you can get involved, please visit publicknowledge.org.